This morning's sermon comes from the book of 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter, verses 17 through 23. I invite you to turn there and follow as I read aloud. 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 23. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Two weeks ago, you may remember, we said that if you hope in the Lord, you honor the Lord. Because drinking at a mountain spring and delighting in what you drink is the best compliment you can pay to a mountain spring. And therefore, God takes pleasure in those who hope in his steadfast love. Then last week we took that hope a step further and said that the upright who pray are people who simply give expression in prayer to the hope in God that they have inside. So prayers are simply the, the, the overflow or the outworking of hope in God. And therefore, God delights in those God-honoring prayers. And today we simply take it one step further and note that... Obedience is the outworking or the making visible of that God-honoring hope within. Hope yields prayer, and hope beyond prayer yields obedience. And therefore, God has more pleasure in obedience than he does in sacrifice. And our text, as you can see, is 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And of course the answer is no. And so since the answer is no, you can take that question and make a statement out of it. Go like this. The Lord delights far more in obedience than he does in ceremonies of worship where there's disobedience. Now, I have two questions to ask about this delight that God has in obedience. This pleasure that wells up in the heart of God when he beholds an obedient people. 
The first question is, why does he delight in obedience? Why does God's heart fill with pleasure as he beholds obedience? And second question, is that good news? We've been stressing through the past two weeks especially that it is incredibly good news to find out that we have a God who on the one hand loves his glory and on the other hand loves people who hope in him so that in one act, namely the hopeful drinking at the throne of grace in prayer and the river that flows from it, God is glorified and we are satisfied. I mean, you can't imagine a better world in which to live than to have a God who has so designed things that the glory of his name and the satisfaction of our souls come to fulfillment in one act. That's just fantastic because it means we can always bank on the passion behind God's love for his glory to engage his omnipotence to fulfill our desires. There's no better world. That's good news. But now today, is it still good news to hear that he not only delights in those who hope in his love, in those who cry out for mercy, but also in obedience? Or is that going to be a burden and not good news? Before we try to answer those questions, let's get the story before us. You remember what happened to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt? The pass along the southern part of Palestine where the Amalekites live, and the Amalekites attacked them from behind and cut off the stragglers. Moses saw it. He commissioned Joshua, his right-hand man, to return fire, as it were, and he fought. And while Moses' hands were up on the mountain, Joshua prevailed. When Moses' arms got tired, the Amalekites prevailed. And so he sat on a rock and her. And Aaron held his arms up all day until they won the battle over the Amalekites. And God never forgot what the Amalekites did. And when he was inspiring Moses to write Deuteronomy, he said, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way that you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off at your rear all who lagged behind you? And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you the rest, have given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Well, many years pass. Saul is made the first king of Israel and God beholds that the iniquity of the Amalekites is now full. And he says to Saul, you execute the sentence that I declared centuries ago. And he gives the command in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt now go, smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. 
And so Saul gathers his army and he goes up against the city of Amalek. He tells the Kenites, clear out or you will be decimated. The Kenites clear out of the way and Saul kills. Verse 9 describes the fatal disobedience, however. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. And the Lord, of course, saw this and he repented that he had made Saul king. Verse 11. Let's pause here and think about that for a minute. What does it mean that God repents? This occurs numerous times in the Old Testament. And it causes stumbling for many people. The reason this is a good place to stop and think about the repenting of God is because of what is said in verse 29. The writer of this book is very conscious about what he's saying here. He wants to leave us no misunderstanding. And therefore, when he gets to verse 29, God is making a new resolution. And he says, the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. What do you make of that? Verse 11 says God repents that he had made Saul king. And verse 29 says he's not a man that he should repent. He does not lie or repent. Same word in Hebrew. I take this to mean that the repenting God does is not like the repenting man does. In fact, the repenting God does is so unlike the repenting man does that it's not a repenting in one sense. It is so unlike the repenting man does that in one sense you ought not call it a repenting. That's what verse 29 is saying. The glory of Israel is not a man that he should repent. Don't put God into the category of a man as though he's repenting the way men repent. Now, what would that be? Well, men do things and then later circumstances come about that they didn't foresee. They frustrate and they have changed their minds. It never happens to God. Don't put God in the category of a man. Don't say that God repents the way man repents. what, What is God's repenting then? I would put it like this. When the Bible says that God repents of something he did or intended to do, it means that God expresses a different attitude about something than he expressed before. But not because the turn of events was unexpected, not because God was taken off guard, something slipped up on God, but because the turn of events makes it now more fitting and more appropriate to express this new attitude about it than what had happened before. Back to Samuel. Samuel is very angry. He is very angry with God. He stays up all night long and prays and cries out to God. And I assume he's crying out against the decree to reject Saul. 
You remember what it said, what Samuel said back in chapter 12, God forbid that I should sin by failing to pray for you. He's keeping that right to the limit. All night he strives with God, just like Jacob, only he does not succeed. The decree has fallen. He wakes up or gets up off his face in the morning and he learns that Saul has set up a monument for himself, verse 12, in Carmel and headed for Gilgal where he was first made king, no doubt, for a great victory celebration where they would slaughter the animals and eat the meat. He meets him in verse 13. The weary prophet who had interceded for Saul all night and the disobedient king. Saul speaks first like a little child with a guilty conscience. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, what's that bleeding I hear? What's the lowing of that cattle that I hear? Saul sees he's in trouble. And in verse 15, he blames the people. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep. But of course, that won't do. Samuel and God see through that. And finally, through the interaction, Saul has to admit it. In verse 24, he has sinned. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Well, there you have it. That's the situation. Now, the first question is this. Why is God so displeased with disobedience? And why is he so delighted and happy about obedience? And there are five reasons at least made plain in the scriptures that we've just looked at. So let's go at them one at a time. Number one, God delights in obedience and is displeased with disobedience because disobedience is a misplacement of fear. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Why did Saul obey the people and not God? Because he feared the people and not God. He's crazy. He's lost his mind. To fear the human consequences of obeying God more than you fear the divine consequences of obeying man is crazy. I mean, put God over here and put people over here. Which one do you want to be against you? The one who controls the universe or those who can only kill the body and after that can do nothing? He's crazy. His fear has been misplaced. Off of God, onto man, and therefore he obeys man. And God is greatly insulted. 
greatly insulted by this misplacement of fear. And therefore, he disapproves and is displeased by disobedience. Second, God is displeased by disobedience because it is a misplacement of pleasure. This is just the flip side of the coin of the misplacement of fear. Saul tried his best to convince Samuel it was a good motive that had caused him to keep the good sheep and the good oxen alive and the king, Agag. But Samuel is a prophet and he sees right through this. He knows what the motive was and he says so. He implies it in verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? What does that mean? Why did you swoop on the spoil? What does that word swoop imply to you? It's a rare Hebrew word. It's only used two other times in the Old Testament. And one of them is chapter 14, verse 32. The people had defeated the Philistines and they come and it says... The people flew, there it is, the people flew upon the spoil, took the sheep, the oxen, the calves, and slew them and ate the meat with the blood in it. What's the point here? The point is they were ravenous for these things. They weren't carefully, meticulously, and piously setting aside the best animals so that God could be honored someday at Gilgal with a glorious ceremony of worship. Baloney! They swooped upon it. They wanted that meat. And you know what? who gets the meat at the sacrifices. The sacrificer gets the meat at the sacrifices. And so the best were saved. So that when they could sacrifice them to the Lord, they would eat that good meat. Don't waste the meat. Don't just slaughter the meat and leave it there in the city. Their pleasure had been misplaced. There was this overweening desire for the pleasure of sheep meat. Not the smile of God. They're crazy. The misplacement of pleasure off of fellowship with God onto a bowl of pottage, just like Esau, just like Judas, just like you and me. Every time we disobey God, setting up some other pleasure rather than the fellowship of God in obedience. Third, disobedience is a displeasure to God because it is a misplacement of praise. What's the first thing Saul does after he conquers the Amalekites? Verse 12. It was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. It's an irrelevant point in the story, isn't it? It's not irrelevant. Tells us what's going on inside Saul's soul. He has misplaced praise off of God onto himself. He doesn't care about making a name for God anymore. He wants a name for Saul. So he erects this monument to Saul and his victory. And you can see this sin even more clearly in verses 17 and 18 when Samuel, with a broken heart, reasons with Saul. Now listen, 
and figure out as I read it the way he's reasoning. Verse 17, Samuel said, Though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them till they're consumed. Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? Now, how's he reasoning? You can see that, can't you? Saul, if you've got a lust for glory, okay, open your eyes. God gave you more glory than you could have ever wanted. Benjamin, the least of the tribes, your tribe, your father, the least of the families in the tribe of Benjamin. He made you king over his people. Do you have to go and make a monument for yourself? Isn't the praise of God enough? Isn't the erection of your lowly self into the role of king enough? Do you have to go and disobey in order to earn the praise of men and erect a monument for yourself? Do you see how he's reasoning? And oh, he reasons with you that way this morning. You Christians, why do you care about what the world says Why do you care about the applause of men when he has elevated you and stamped on your papers, Prince of Heaven, Princess of Heaven, Son and Daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What an insult to the Almighty when we try to add glory to his glory by winning the applause of men through disobedience. The fourth reason he dislikes disobedience and hates it and loves obedience is this. Disobedience is divination. Verse 23. We're right on textual ground now. Explicit thinking of Samuel here, not just inferring anymore. Verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken, then the fat of rams. Why? Because rebellion is the sin of divination. Stronger in the Hebrew than it is in this little English when they add the word as. It is divination. Now, what does that mean? What is divination? What's wrong with divination? Deuteronomy 18 There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination, a zoosayer, an auger, a sorcerer, a charmer, a medium, a wizard, a necromancer, an astrologer, a Ouija board player, a dealer in cards a worker of crystal balls, a palm reader. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. You may as well slaughter your son as read the astrology column. You think it's that serious to God? And the point of this verse here is 
Rebellion is divination. Why? Why is disobedient and, and rebellion divination? Well, divination is the turning away from the wisdom and counsel of God to consult another source for how you should go in life. That's not enough. I will consult a ball. I will consult a palm. I will consult a table. I will consult a wizard, a, a medium. I will consult cards. Or I will consult my mind. I will consult the little wizard of my mind and check it out to see whether this is really the most loving way to act. I mean, God says, don't do this or do this and... Let me consult my mind. Excuse me, God. I will see whether my mind agrees. And God says, divination. Abomination. That's the fourth reason why rebellion is hated by God. And the final reason is that disobedience is idolatry. The last half of verse 23 Rebellion is the sin of divination, and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. In other words, not only do disobedient people consult the little wizard of their mind and ask for counsel whether or not they want to go God's way, after they have consulted and committed an act of divination, they go beyond that, and in disobedience, they bow before the idol of themselves. I tell you, disobedience is, is, a, is an important thing in God's mind. You can't get any more important than words like these. Idolatry and divination are the worst sins of the Old Testament. Samuel reached as far as he could reach to condemn what was happening here. And all he did was keep alive some sheep and a king. So it should be plain that God loves obedience. His heart beats fast with obedience because obedience is the opposite of all these things. Disobedience puts the fear of man in the place of fear of God. Disobedience elevates the pleasure in things above pleasure in God. Disobedience seeks a name for itself instead of making a name for God. Disobedience consults the wisdom of self dissatisfied with the wisdom of God. Disobedience sets more value on the dictates of self than it does on the will of God and therefore it de thrones God and enthrones the self. You attack the Almighty when you disobey, no matter how small the disobedience, even if it's the keeping alive of an animal. Last question. Is it good news to hear that God delights in obedience? Very briefly, let me give you six reasons why it is really good news. It would be bad news if he didn't. And it is good news that God delights in obedience. First, God's delight in obedience is good news because it means that he is praiseworthy and reliable. 
If God did not hate disobedience, he would be split wide open, double-tongued, two-faced, schizophrenic, exalting his glory over here, ignoring the disobedient acts that cry his glory down over here. And I can't worship a God like that. He's not admirable anymore. His praiseworthiness is gone and my pleasure is gone. And that's not good news to me to know that my pleasure is gone. And he can't be relied upon. I mean, how do you rely upon a fickle God? At one moment, he's exalting the glory of his name. At the next moment, he's ignoring those things that trample his glory in the dirt. You can't trust a God like that. You don't know what he might do. It's not good news, brothers, if God ignores disobedience. It's good news if God loves obedience. Second, God's delight in in obedience is good news because it guarantees the promise that someday this world is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord the way the waters cover the sea. That's my hope. Is that your hope? Do you want your hopes dashed? Or do you want to have no confidence in your hopes? Then think that God doesn't care about disobedience. If God didn't care about disobedience, if He was indifferent, if He was neutral towards disobedience, I would have no grounds for hoping that one day this world would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of God is not displayed in disobedient people. If I can't be sure that this world is going to be cleaned of disobedient people someday and filled with obedient people, I have no hope for glory. I don't want to live in an eternity where there is no fullness of glory, where God's glory isn't rebounding back fully in the lives of people, but is being trampled throughout all eternity in the dirt on this earth where I live. Third, God's delight in obedience is good news because it shows God's delight in obedience is good news because it shows that grace is a power and not just a tolerance of evil. The glory of God's grace is what I delight in. I want to see the glory of God's grace displayed in power. And I know that its power is a sanctifying power. Someday God's glorious grace is going to gradually, finally, and victoriously eradicate my sin. If God were indifferent to disobedience... I would have no confidence that the glory of God's grace would be displayed in power to eradicate my sin. That's not good news to me. If God leaves me in my sin, if God is indifferent to my sin and your sin, that's bad news. My hope is that God's going to clean house on me someday and I am going to be purified because His grace is not just tolerance of sin, it is sovereign power To conquer sin. Fourth, God's delight in obedience is good news because none of His commandments is too hard. They're only as hard to obey as His glory is hard to cherish and His promises are hard to believe. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. This command which I command you this day is not too hard for you. 
First John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Fifth, God's delight in obedience is good news because everything he commands me to do is for my good. And therefore, when it says that he delights in my obedience, it means he delights in my happiness. And that's good news. Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I command you for your good. There's not one command in the Bible that God gives to you this morning that is not for your good. The pursuit of every commandment is the pursuit of happiness. And that's good news, therefore, that God delights in our obedience. For if he didn't, he could not be a loving God. And finally, the delight that God has in obedience is good news because the obedience in which he delights is the obedience of faith. What's faith? Faith is the banking of our hope on the mercy of God. And what does mercy mean? Mercy means that your obedience doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be penitent. If you will confess with your lips, or if you will confess your sin... He is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The obedience that God delights in is laced with confession till the last day. And so I conclude by reminding you, our God is not a watering trough. He is a mountain spring. And therefore... Obedience is not a bucket brigade to fill his need. Obedience is the irrepressible overflow in life of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good.